This is Revelation 2, 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, before we jump into that uh, text, let me pray for us and ask for God's help. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we open your word each week to hear from you. Whatever, whatever we're going on, whatever we bring into this, this room, um, God, we want to have you speak into our lives. And so I pray... Uh, as we open your word and hear what it says, would you speak by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a, a voice in my life that has been, has been really important, uh, but recently I've begun to question if I, if I should keep listening to this voice. A voice that had been true uh, to me, had spoken truth to me for a, a long time ago, but a, a few months ago failed me in a, in a pretty significant Way and the voice I'm talking about is uh, is Google Maps. I was I was driving to Chicago and and there are a few places where Google Maps is more important than Chicago because it is like it is the worst city in the country to drive in, and and we were getting there and, and Google Maps has been faithful to me through most of my life, navigating me through complex traffic, getting me to whatever coffee shop I wanted to get to, and and so wherever it's told me to go, I've I've gone. And so we were driving as a family to Chicago. And, and on the way, we were about an hour outside the city, and Google Maps told me to, to get off the interstate in like a half mile to avoid an oncoming delay. And so, because I was driving the speed limit in the right-hand lane, I was already set up very well. Um, but I get, to, I get right by the exit, and there's some, some of you caught that sarcasm. Uh, some, uh, so I get to the right, I'm right there to get off, the, and right as it's time to get off the exit, Google Maps said, don't do it. And it, it redirected me back onto the interstate. So I listened, and I get back on the interstate, and I get like another half mile down the road, and traffic started to slow down, slower and slower and slower, until eventually we, we stopped. And I put my car into park, my car with four children, all under the age of seven, and my, my wife. There's a, a picture of, of that. We waited there for about uh, two hours. Uh, we waited there so long that, uh, that my coffee addiction finally paid off and all the empty coffee cups we had, my, my sons had to use uh, the restroom in. I was like, this is what the grass is for, right? But my wife didn't agree with that. Um, and so I, I get out of my van. I start walking ahead. I mean, just no one's moving. And, and as I'm walking ahead, just seeing cars parked for miles ahead, I just thought, this is it. The zombie apocalypse has started and all those hours of walking dead finally will pay off in some way 
shape, or form. No, Google Maps, it's navigating me out of, of trouble so often, and I, but I begin to wonder, do I need a new app? The rest of the way, I, I started downloading new apps uh, to get me the rest of the way to Chicago. And our world, our world has an app for everything, and our world has, has a voice for everything. There's lots of people who, who want to tell you how to live, what to say, where to go, who to be. So who are you listening to? Or what voice in your life is loudest now? What voice most directs your steps, guides your path, shapes your heart? Because if you're listening to the, the wrong voice or the wrong voices, that, that leads to destruction, right? It leads to a terrible place. And so what I want to do this morning as we, we continue our series in Revelation 1 through 3 is just, is just ask, who are you listening to? And kind of have three questions underneath that. Whoever it is that you're listening to, are they, is it true? Are they telling you the truth? Um, are they worthy? Is, is that voice worthy of your ear, your heart? And thoroughly and most important, does it, does it actually give you rest? So first, is it, is it true? Is the loudest voice in your life, or whoever you're listening to, are they telling you the truth? And we're in the middle of a, a nine-week series we're calling A Church for the End of the World. And we're looking just at the first three chapters of Revelation where Jesus writes to seven different churches, real churches, real cities, real places, to tell them how to live between his first coming and his second coming. And throughout church history, the churches use these letters to reorient themselves back to the voice of Jesus, back to the voice of our Messiah. And these letters would not only have been read in their own cities, they would have been read throughout the, the church that was navigating really complex times. And so we kind of wanted to do that as a church together, is, is we feel like we live in complex times and we want to orient our own church back to the voice of Jesus, to stay, uh, stay faithful to the voice of Jesus. And this morning, the letter that Katie read for us was to a, a city called Pergamum. And Pergamum, it was a, a city famous in particular for their worship of the Roman empires, or, or, or emperors. It was the first, it was the city that was the, the first city to build a, an, a temple to a living emperor. So think about that. We have a, a, our own kind of weird thing where we worship our political leaders, but we don't like, there's not like a, a temple to Barack Obama or a temple to, to Donald Trump. Um, we don't have that, but they did that in Pergamum. And they were the first one to build a, a temple to a living emperor named Augustus. And that would have put enormous pressure on Christians to worship the Caesars, to worship the emperors as God. And that's probably why Jesus in this letter names this man named Antipas, who was killed for his faith. Most likely it was probably because he, he refused to worship the emperor. And so the, this is a really important city for emperor worship. But it's, it's also why twice in this letter, Jesus refers to Pergamum as, as Satan's home. It's two times. In verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, right? He's speaking to the church. I know where you guys live, where Satan's throne is. It's pretty intense stuff. And some believe this is a reference to this hill. I have a picture behind, which was sort of conical in shape, shaped like a throne. A number of temples were built on that. And so Jesus may have been referring to this, this hill, but whatever he's referring to, it's clear that, like Satan has a unique presence in this place. So at the end of verse 13, he says to this church, You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And this is, I understand, like modern folks were like, all right, Satan, 
And immediately we start thinking, or at least if you're like me, you start thinking back to the old SNL skit with Dana Carvey, the church lady. Uh, Satan, or I'm not going to do that, but I'm, I almost did it. Uh, Satan, right? He's, this, you know, he's a silly figure. Uh, pitchforked, re- he dresses in red, like a cartoon character. And so our own, our own day is really skeptical towards this idea of a, of a Satan. And yet, um, I, I am not that skeptical towards the idea that there is a, a supernatural, brilliant be, uh, being who is, who is evil. And it's because of the way the Bible describes him, not as a, he's got a pitchfork and he's going to poke you. Like he's, that's not the way the Bible describes him. The Bible describes him primarily as doing two things. And you get this in Revelation 12, when he's finally defeated. We read this about, about the Satan. I read these verses last week, but I'll read them again. A great dragon was thrown down. This is Revelation 12, verses 9 and 10. A great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. So those two verses say Satan does primarily two things. First is that he lies. He's the deceiver of the whole world. And that's, that's the way Jesus describes him in John's gospel. He describes Satan as, as a liar. And I was just like, have you ever wondered how it is that, that human beings can come to believe things that are like so obviously not true? And you can reason with them, you can be patient with them, right? You can show them the truth in loving ways, but they, they cannot see it. Or let's be honest, have you had an experience where, where one day you woke up and realized that suddenly I, I've been believing and living as if something is true and it's not. And your world just shakes. The Bible says that's not, like, there's not a coincidence, it's not an accident. There's actually a, a being who's, who's hell-bent on doing that to us, deceiving us getting us to believe things that are not true and to, to bring our lives into, um, into coordination with, with unreality, with deception, with lies. I think once you've had enough experience with that, the idea that there is, that it's not just that human beings just keep making mistakes and believing things are not, but like there's a being that is, inc- is helping us do that. I don't think that's a stretch. The other thing Satan is described as being is, is an accuser. He, he lies and he accuses. And we're told Satan is the accuser of the brothers and sisters. He's the accuser of the church. <clears throat> and actually, the, the word Satan, it's a Hebrew word, which means accuser. Like, that's, that's where the word comes from. And again, like, my experience of life and as being a pastor is, is we accuse both one another and ourselves. Like, how much of your self-talk is accusational? Right, you do, how, look how terrible you did that. That was your fault. When are you ever going to do this right? You should just quit. Like how much of our own self-talk is, is accusational in, in nature? And a large part of my, my work as a pastor is helping people deal with their own self-accusations. 
believing accusations against themselves that either maybe have some truth in them but have led to a place of condemnation and no hope, or they like accusations that like, actually aren't true. They're believing things about themselves that are not true. And the reason for that, the Bible says, is there's a, there's a being that is working really hard to do that to us. And so certain, like if your idea of a Satan is, is pitchfork and, and, and red leotard, like, do, yeah, don't think that way. But when you start accusing yourselves or when you wake up one day realizing you've been believing something that's not true, the Bible has a, like, has a category and a story behind that for us. And so Satan may seem silly until you sit down with a, a victim of abuse and they are convinced it was their fault. Satan seems like a ridiculous idea until you sit down with, with someone who has suffered and they are convinced they deserve every bit of it and even more. Until you sit down with someone who is, is convinced that they are not lovable and there's no conceivable way God would extend his grace towards them. So we read that like Satan lives, at this point he lived in Pergamum. This person of accusation and dishonesty. And yet despite the presence of Satan, we're told the church sort of resisted his outward accusations and lies. To the point that one of their own members of their church had, had, had refused to worship the Caesar, most likely, uh, and, and had died for it. And so they're praised initially for their resistance of this, this dwelling place of Satan. But then we were told uh, that they had done something wrong. That the church, while they're praised for this, they are, they're rebuked because there's some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. This is like, what, is, what does that mean? Like, who's Balaam and what's he teaching? And Balaam, this is a reference to an Old Testament story, which is like easily a top five Bible story. And I wish I could tell all of it. I can't because the weirdest part is like you wouldn't make sense. So I'm going to skip over the best part. But you just Google Balaam, Balaam. Go read that story in Numbers later. But essentially, like the story of Balaam was Balaam was, he was like a prophet-like figure. And he was so good at being a prophet that people paid him to like, if you had an enemy, you, you bought Balaam to curse your enemy. And then your enemy got cursed. And so this king named Balak, he, uh, he hires Balaam to curse God's people Israel. He says, I'm going to give you some money. You go and you, you pronounce curses on, on God's people on Israel. And so Balaam does it and he goes to curse Israel. But because they're God's people, when Balaam speaks up to speak curses on them, he actually speaks blessing. And so uh, this obviously doesn't make Bal- uh, Balak very happy. But, but Balaam essentially cannot pronounce curses on Israel because they're God's people. So Balaam, uh, a, lot, a lot happens, I'm going to skip over a lot, but, but eventually what happens is Balaam recognizes he can't speak directly against God's people. And so rather than do that, he's going to, he's going to infiltrate them. And what he does is he, he sends a, a, a group of people who follow another God, another religion, uh, to, to sort of infiltrate, uh, infiltrate Israel, and in particular have men of Israel marry uh, women from this, this false religion. And through those marriages, God's people began to worship other gods. And rather than being able to directly curse God's people, he infiltrated them and they, they fell apart from within. And so what's happening in Pergamum most likely is, is in, Satan tried to do a direct attack on the church. It didn't work. And so now he, uh, he's infiltrated them. And Pastor H.B. Charles put this best where he says, if the devil can't destroy a church, he'll join it. And so these false teachers have, have begun teaching and speaking. And we're not sure what exactly they were speaking and teaching. Most likely it was probably 
uh, a sense of compromise. Like, you know, you can probably worship the, the emperor. There's some things you can do. You don't, don't do all of it, but do some of it. Things the Bible had, had committed. We're not exactly sure what it is, but, but whatever it is, it is, it is false teaching the church has permitted. And teachers who are using their voice to guide the church away from the voice of Jesus. And so the first question, like, is, are the voices that you're listening to, like, the things that direct your steps in life, are they, are they true? Do they guide your feet towards Jesus or away from him? But more than that, to recognize that, that false teaching, the things that ultimately guide our, our, our eyes and, and ears and hearts away from the way of Jesus often claim to be Christian, most often claim to be Christian, which is what makes it so dangerous. And so I want to push further into that, right? This question one, is the voice that's loudest to you, is it true, right? But secondly, is it, is it, is it worthy? And so each of these uh, seven letters, they start with, with Jesus, an image of Jesus, who he is, what he's like, and, and this image of, of Jesus that we're given to Pergamum is pretty intense, We're told Jesus is the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. This is not precious moments, Jesus. I've seen this image, or I have not seen this image of Jesus in anyone's house. Right? Like, I've seen lamb holding Jesus. I've seen recently uh, had his hair done, Jesus. I've never seen, like, I've got a sword, Jesus. And I'm ready to make war. And that's the Jesus we get here in Pergamum, is, is that Jesus is brandishing this double-edged sword. So what is that? Like, what is the sword that he's got? Because that's pretty intimidating. And this image, it's, it's, about, it's about two things. I mean, ultimately, it's, it's, it's a reference to the word of God. Anytime you have a double-edged sword, it's, it's the scriptures, it's the word of God. And there's two things this image would point to. First is that the word of God, the sword, is, is life-altering truth. And so in Ephesians 6, we're told that the church, in order to withstand uh, the world's pressure against them, needs to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Right? So the, the sword in the Bible is a reference to the Word of God, to the Scriptures, but also to God's spoken revelation about himself. And Hebrews 4.12 is probably the best example of this, 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 this image, the, what it means and how it should be unpacked. And here's what the author of Hebrews says. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And this image, it's, it's a little frightening, and yet, if you've had this experience where the word of God has laid you bare, it's, it's much more like surgery than, uh, than an attack. Right? When the word of God divides your soul and spirit, cuts through the, jo- the joints and marrow, discerns our thoughts and attentions, it's intimidating, it's frightening, but ultimately it's, it leads to salvation. And that's why in Acts 2, after preach, uh, Peter preaches the gospel for the first time, people respond to Peter's preaching, and, and we read this in Acts 2. Now, when they heard this, when they heard the gospel, they were cut to the heart. Right? The sword of the word of God cut them to the heart. 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And that's what the word of God, like the scriptures do that. They cut past our excuses, our empty ways of living, all our darkness, and it cuts right into reality and lays us bare. And like a good surgeon opens us up in order to be healed, ultimately, and yet has to cut to get to the, the, what's broken in us. That's what the, like the word of God does that. It's not just, this isn't just an image of judgment. The sword of the word, it's, it's an image of healing, but of painful healing because we need to be restored. We need to be healed. We need to be saved. And that's the, so that's the first thing. Like the word of God, is, it, being a sword is not just a negative image. It's an image of healing, but it is, it is an image of judgment. And Jesus makes clear in, in this letter to the Pergamum church, I am coming to make war on false teachers. The teachers of Balaam, I am, I am coming with my sword against them. Right? Jesus says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. But Jesus hates it when people misrepresent him. Or says things about him that are not true. Or twists who he is to make him more an image of ourselves than the, the unchangeable, powerful God that he is. I think it's worth, like, it's, it's worth pausing because we live in a day, an age, in a culture where there are so many people saying so many things about Jesus. Endless podcasts, endless books, sort of the Christian marketable in, in, uh, industry. Right? There's so many people saying so much about Jesus. And, and like, is everything they're saying worthy of our attention? And better yet, like, how do you discern what's worthy of our attention and what is not worthy of our attention? I know, like, I think some of the reaction to that in the American context, is, at least has been my own reaction as a, as a pastor, is sort of like, oh, come on, like, don't be mean, right? Like, there's, there's nice people, they're well-intentioned. Um, I just want to, like, I want to be clear, this isn't me. I'm not, I didn't bring a sword on the stage and like threaten people with false teeth. Like Jesus did that. Jesus comes with a sword and says, if you teach things that misrepresent me to this world, I, I have it out for you. That's Jesus' own words. And more than that, like the problem I think with false teaching oftentimes is we begin to think, well, I need, like it's about a theological exam in heaven and we all need to have the right beliefs and that's really what matters. And that's, that's not the way the Bible, I think, would, would primarily talk about false teaching, is that you need to pass the theological exam in heaven. It's that when you believe things that are not true, you're going to le- believe things that are not in correspondence with reality, which, which is going to be de- right, deceptive. And we all know what that is. When we believe things that are not true, it destroys us, right? It, it ruins our lives. It makes life so difficult. But also what false teaching does is it, it, we live in accusation of ourselves against others. Like right? The false teaching ultimately... It's not about having a perfect theology. It's about not falling into the work of the evil one who wants to accuse us and deceive us and lead us down a path that will ultimately destroy us. And so what I want to do, I want to to push into that a little bit of, of, okay, how do we begin to discern what voices are worth listening to, what voices are not worth listening to? I want to say three things to that. The first, the uh, false... False voices strip away the authority of Jesus. And this can happen in one of two ways. The progressive way to do that is to take the sword out of Jesus' hand by rejecting all the hard teachings of the Bible. And you say, we're not going to believe that. Or that doesn't really mean that. Or we're, just, we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to think about 
That, that's the progressive way of, of false teaching. The conservative way is to take Jesus' sword out of his hand and to wield it yourself. And to say, you know, Jesus said a lot of things, but he forgot some things. And I'm here to fill in the gaps. And here are the rules you don't know and you don't have. And I'm going to give you more than what the Bible gives you. And so there's two ways, right? There's lots of different ways we can misrepresent Jesus to, to the world. And the people who claim to speak for, speak for Jesus that you listen to, whatever podcast they are, whatever books they are, I would just like, when you listen to them, do they speak or do they, do they sound as if someone to whom Jesus is an authority in their life? Someone they have submitted to. I think what was most likely happening in Pergamum here was that these false teachers were encouraging Christians to worship Caesar, to offer sacrifices to the Caesars. Because if you didn't, you could not do business in the city. The trade guilds all happened in the context of the temple. So if you said, I can't participate in that, you had a hard time getting work, getting a job, participating in the community. And you can imagine the argument that the teachers of Balaam would have said to the, to, to, to the church, right? If you don't sacrifice, how are you going to make money? How are you going to pay your bills? Right? You're responsible to your children and to your family. Like you've got, you have to make money. And it, it, listen, if you do sacrifice, maybe you'll, get, you'll gain a platform. You can be influential. You can, you can really use that platform from Jesus. Yes, it requires a little bit of, of, of sacrificing your principles, but imagine how God can use you if, you if you're in the trade guilds. And suddenly the scriptures, something that the scriptures explicitly say, do not do this, which is offer sacrifices to other gods. We reason our way to, I think Jesus wants me to do that thing. And many, uh, many people today who claim to speak for Jesus want us to sacrifice to a false god. It's not the Caesars, right? That's gone away with. That We all see that as it is. It's not another religion. It's, it's the god of self, what we see in the mirror. And instead of Jesus, who bears this sword, the word of God, to cut away all that is false in me, all that is broken, that is, that is, that is wicked, that is evil... Instead, Jesus puts away the sword and just says, you know, whatever you need to do to be happy, just do that. Stop worrying so much. Just, just you be happy. Like, find happiness. That's what Jesus really wants for you, which sounds so enticing, but ultimately strips away the authority of Jesus. And that's been a, that's been a guardrail for me. When I listen to people speak, do they sound like Jesus is an authority? Like, like their Jesus could actually hold a sword. Both in a gracious, like, life-saving way and also in a that-is-false way. So, so first, you know, false, uh, false voices strip away the authority of Jesus. Secondly, false voices, they always sound true. I think this is important because I think a lot of times when we start talking about false teaching or, or, or ideas getting into the church that are not right, I think we think, like, like things that are obviously wicked to us, right? Like, you know, like Satan's going to come and, and try to convince us that Elvis is really alive. Right? It's like we all know that's not right. Like Satan does not drive a creepy 1970s van with shag carpet offering you a ride. It's not how he's going to appear. Right? It's like we all see that van and we're like, oh, I'm, I'm good. I'll walk. Right? We all, that's all clear. But that's not how false teaching works. Satan is a really talented liar. And his lies towards us, his deception towards us always has emotional weight. And so going back to Google Maps for a second... And most of us, when we, when we drive somewhere, we, we don't think about it, right? We may not have Google Maps on, 
Um, but we have, like, we have a mental map in our minds about where, where it is we're going. So if, if, when you drive to work tomorrow, most likely no one here is going to think much about your drive because your brain, like, it, it puts all that into memory so that while you're driving, you can do more important things like check your email and text people back. Um, don't do that. Uh, but no, Google, well, Google Maps, you have this mental map of how to get to work so I don't have to think uh, about where I'm going and I can do other things. And here's the thing, we all have mental maps for how to navigate our life. We have mental maps about what power is. We have mental maps about what we should do with money. We have mental maps about what love is, what relationships should look like, what sex is. And so what is, what are, what is your route ultimately? What is your mental map to happiness, to a good life? Because Satan's strategy ultimately, it's not going to be to get you into a creepy van. It's going to be just to get you to shift your def- destination a little bit. And ultimately, Satan's strategy is, is deceitful ideas that play to disordered I- uh, desires within us that then get normalized in society. Deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in society. So think of it like this. Today, the predominant view of sexuality is that you cannot be truly happy unless you express your own sexual identity, right? If, if, you're, if you're single and you're celibate, that cannot lead to a good life. And that's sort of the predominant view of our own culture. And increasingly, that's becoming a view that shapes a lot of, of Christian thinking, that the idea of celibacy or being single and not engaging or not practicing out your sexual identity, unless it's in the context of a marriage or someone of the opposite gender, the church is largely beginning to accept that. And, I, like, I sit back and I just think, like, how did the... How did the religion that worships a single celibate guy as God say that if you're single and celibate, you can't have a meaningful, rich, full life? Like, that's who Jesus is, and yet the church is like, you know, you can't, that life is not a good life. And yet, like, that's our Messiah. That's our Savior. And he lived a really good, beautiful, full life. Or think of it, the mental map for for power. And I just think I've been wrestling a lot with this. The number of, of pastors who amounts, amass so much power that they're, that they're sto- that we've, we've read the stories of, of whether it's sexual sin or financial abuse, and yet the church, even though they knew those things, kept them in power, kept them in their position, until the truth finally became so public they couldn't any, anymore. And the question, like, how did the church begin to exalt leaders and keep them in positions of power even though they had like disqualified themselves in terms of their own ministry, how did the church get there? And it's because we shifted our view of mental, our mental map of power, right? What matters is can you attract a crowd? What matters is can you get, can you, can you, can you do great things for God? And instead of instead of using Jesus' mental map for leadership, which is, is Jesus saying, I did not come to be served. I came to, to serve and to give my life as a ransom. For many, instead, the power structure of the church just took on the power structure of the world, which is if you bring value, if you, have, if you can bring money or people or fame, we'll look, us, we'll look away. And so we have new mental maps for power, for sexuality, for all of these things. And none of them started with, hey, church, why don't, why don't you defile yourself? Why don't you just, like, totally abandon Jesus' view of power? That's not how Satan works. It's subtle. It's... It's just, no, just take this turn. Go this way. Right? Don't get off that exit. Stay on. And so the false voice always sounds true. Satan is never going to bring something that's not true to you that is not enticing. 
And thirdly and finally, and most importantly to me, that the true voice will always bring you rest. It's the be- I think it's the best, not, not happiness, but rest. And what I mean is there, there's, a, there's a moment when Jesus, he had been fasting for 40 days, and he's, he goes out into the wilderness, he's tempted by Satan. And Satan says, you, you haven't eaten in 40 days, uh, take those stones and make them into bread. And Jesus says to Satan in that moment, man does not live by bread alone. He's quoting the scriptures. He's quoting scriptures at him. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I think I've always read that as like Jesus saying, I'm, I'm going to try really hard not to eat that. I want the bread. I want the stones to become, I'm so hungry, but I'm not going to do it because it's wrong. And I, I think actually more what's going on there and what Jesus is saying is, I'm not hungry. I don't need those stones to become bread because I, I, am, I am nourished fully on the word of God, on, on my father's voice. And so I don't, I don't need physical food. I'm not tempted by what you're offering me because I don't need it. I have the word. And so the best way ultimately to not give in to false teaching is to, is to be so thoroughly nourished on the scriptures and on the voice of God through his word that the deceptions, the accusations, the lies that the evil one brings to us, it's not that we resist them because we're really strong. It's like, it's, I'm full. I'm not, I'm not enticed by this. Right? I don't live by bread alone. I live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so this, this, this week, what if one day you decided that no podcasts, no television, no social media, the only voice I'm going to fill my space with, other than the people I work with, all those things, the only voice I'm going to listen to are the scriptures. Because I, I think the primary way that, that Satan deceives me in my own life is not, it's not false teaching. It's, it's fill my life with noise. My Netflix queue, the million good podcasts I have to listen to, the endless voices that can say, it's not that like, Listen to this really bad thing, right? Get in my creepy van. That's not what he does. He just says, yeah, just listen to that and that and this. And, and so, like, I can't say what Jesus says in that moment to Satan. I, I am full of this. I'm full of the word of God. I'm not enticed by this. I can't say that because I'm not full. And so what is this? Would you just pick a day? Or maybe you pick seven days this week. And just for a moment, the Netflix queue goes away. The podcasts go away. And you find a good Bible app that plays audio. And you just listen to that. And let God speak truth into your life again and again and again. Because if you get there, you get, to, you get to a place of rest, right? You, can, you cannot have eaten for 40 days, and stones in the bread is not enticing to you because you are nourished in the word of God. And that's where I want to end, is, is, is with all the voices you're listening to right now, do you ha- are you restful? Do you have rest? And so Jesus, he, I mean, he's, he said some hard things to the church, right? He said, I have a sword. I'm, I'm coming for you if you don't repent. And then he says, but if you, if you do repent, if you listen, he says this, to the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. He uses two images there. The first is, 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 is hidden manna. And manna it was, is this weird food that God used to provide for his people in the, in the, in the Hebrew Bible when they, were, when they were being led out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. And God literally just he fed them 
with this miraculous food, manna. He fed them. And so the voice of Jesus, it is, it is both sword and it is, it is nourishment. It's, the sa- it's, it's, it's a threat and it's grace at the same time. And he offers to, to cut the bone and marrow of our lives, to get down to what's, what's broken, what's not right, to lay us bare, open us up, and then to feed us, to nourish us. It was a couple weeks ago, we, uh, uh, Misty had a procedure done, and, and she got out, and, and we drove, the first thing we did, we went to, went to Planet Sub, and I got her not a half a sub, a whole sub, because she hadn't eaten in like 24 hours, right? It's, and that's what Jesus does with us, right? It's, we're vulnerable, we're weak, we've been laid open by the word, and, and he says, now let me feed you. Let me give you some of the hidden manna that actually gives you rest, that actually nourishes you, that actually fills your soul such that you could not eat and you're not hungry. So it's hidden manna, but then white stone. And and commentators are a little bit unsure of what this means. But most likely it's probably a reference to the Roman uh, court system, where if you were going to be found guilty, you were given a black stone. And if you were found not guilty, you were given a white stone. And I think ultimately what's so dangerous about false teaching, and it's not about the fact that you might fail the great heavenly theological exam, right? Heaven is not seminary on steroids. What Jesus cares so much about is that false teaching leads to deception, which leads to accusation against yourself and others. And that's where Satan wants you to live. In self-accusation, in deception, lost, <laughs> out in, in the road with a mental map that is not going to bring you life. He wants you to carry a black stone around with you. You're guilty. There's no, there's no grace for you. Do you, do, you, do you remember what you did? <laughs> do you remember what happened? That's, that's where Satan wants you to live. And Jesus says, no, I want you to live with a white stone. And my sword of the word, it's not meant to condemn you and to leave you in a place of loneliness and accusation. It is meant to heal you and restore you and for you to, to enter into this world as a forgiven human being. Now think about it. Jesus, the son of God, All authority in heaven and earth with the double-edged sword does not stand over you as your accuser. That is Satan's job, and he enjoys it. Jesus does not stand over you as your accuser. He stands over you, white stone extended, if you're willing to let his sword cut in to all that is wrong with you. And that also is the gospel, right? He took our place. He got the black stone, the vote of condemnation. He went to a cross, suffered a horrible Death, And when I take that in, like when I think about that, it's like, why would I, why would I fill my voice or my, my ears with voices that do not lead me to the, to the place of Jesus? Right? Why is so much of my life spent with voices that don't lead me into that place? Why would we ever listen to voices that are not listening to Jesus? Why would I ever fill my world with any voice but his? And so this morning, take his white stone. Be declared forgiven, not guilty, by the Son of God. And let his sword cut away all that is false in us. Let's pray. Father, I confess, I don't often think of Jesus wielding a sword. 
And yet he does that one to, as God, it's an image that, that all that's false in this world will meet its judgment day. And Jesus will come and make all things that are wrong right. But also, uh, Lord, he, Jesus holds that over us to perform surgery in us, to change us, to heal us, to cut down to our hearts so that we open ourselves up and just say, God, what, what, what can we do to be saved? And so in that, for those, God, of us that were in that, God, what can I do to be saved? I'm in, a, I'm in the wrong place. Would you lead us to the path of faith and confession and repentance? For those of us who, there's just a lot of voices right now. Would you give us the discernment of what voices are giving us rest and life and nourishment and what voices aren't? And to begin to shut out the voices that just aren't bringing the life that we would hope they would bring. And more than anything, God, as, as we sing, would you come and, and make that white stone, that, that innocence, that forgiveness, make it real to us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.